Hello, and welcome to the Skift Airline Weekly Lounge. Our regular listeners may have noticed that we took a hiatus earlier this year. We reimagined the podcast, and we're back, relaunching the lounge with this week's episode. First, let me introduce myself. I'm Madhuni Krishnan, the new editor of Skift Airline Weekly. I've been on the job now for a couple of months, and in that time, we redesigned the Skift Airline Weekly newsletter and started to mix up the content, giving you more of the analysis you've come to appreciate and adding more original reporting. Stay tuned for further refinements, especially as we mark an important milestone next month. Skift Airline Weekly's 15th anniversary is in June. To subscribe, go to airlineweekly.com slash subscribe. I've been a listener to the Airline Weekly Lounge for years, and I'm thrilled that we'll be building on the solid foundation laid down by Seth Kaplan and Jason Cottrell. In the next few weeks, we'll be relaunching the podcast on a regular weekly schedule. Look for it on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be providing more of what you've come to enjoy with the Airline Weekly Lounge. Jay Shabbat, Airline Weekly Senior Analyst, and I will feature our regular staff commentary as well as interviews with airline executives and other industry newsmakers. Stay tuned. And this week, to whet your appetite, we're podcasting an interview our colleague Brian Summers, who covers airlines for Skift Travel, did with British Airways CEO Alex Cruz a couple of weeks ago at the Skift Forum Europe in London. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and as always, I look forward to your comments and suggestions for future podcast subjects. Feel free to drop me a line at mu at skift.com, and I'll be speaking to you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chairman and CEO British Airways, Alex Cruz, in discussion with Skift Aviation Business Editor, Brian Summers. Good morning, everyone. Alex, uh, thanks for joining me here. Uh, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone we will take questions <coughs> at the end here, also on Slido. Um, so you can go to Slido either on the app or uh, slido.com and enter uh, Skift Forum as the hashtag. All right, should we get started? Great. All right. So I feel like if we had been doing this three years ago after you joined BA, I could have been sitting with... Um, you know, one of the most uh, hated figures in the United Kingdom. And right now, I'm with you, and you're so popular. Your airline is making, what, you made uh, 2 billion pounds uh, last year in net profit. Um, the brand is on fire. So what have you changed in the last three years? How did you become, you know, who you are today? I, I don't know if I should dwell on the most hated or, or on the other one. I, I think probably neither one. Okay. Um, yes, uh, when we started this new phase of British Airways, there were many decisions to be taken with regards to the direction of the company. And uh, some of those decisions that were taken early on were indeed uh, probably uh, um, uh, less welcome uh, right. than others. But I think the vision was extremely clear from the very beginning. Uh, we introduced the word customer into our business plans, into our business cases, into the internal uh, way in which we communicate with each other. And I think that we are not done yet. And I, I was just debating now, are we a third of the way through? Are we one-fourth of the way through? It's somewhere in there. We still have a lot of work that has to be done, um, not just investing in the product. Uh, we've committed 6.7 billion pounds, and that's airplane seats, food, lounges, technology, um, check-in, apps. It's everything. 
There's also changing the mindset of, of, our, of our own company, of ourselves, the way that we work with each other, the way in which we develop new products, and the way that we uh, are passionate about our customers. So it's a long journey. It's only been three years, uh, amazingly enough. Um, but there's a great deal to, 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 to do just yet. Uh, do you ever find it tiring? You know, this happens in the United States too. People are also always telling me, and I'm sure you, what these airlines used to be like. In many ways, they're better now than they used to be. But are, are people living in the past sometimes when they think about airlines? I think we all do. Uh, you know, this year, it's an incredible year for British Airways. We become 100 years uh, old. So we're doing a lot of things that take sense. About a third of what we're doing is to celebrate history. And uh, it really is worth going into the archives. And by the way, we're, we're going to publish a digital um, archive of pictures and videos over the last 100 years, which it's, it's really going to, going to be amazing. But to understand where we come from, uh, I think it's very important. I used to teach a class here at UCL that talked about the evolution of passenger behavior throughout the years. And to understand what that experience was, okay, maybe 70, 80 years ago, not so relevant. But 30 years, 40 years ago, 20 years ago, it's important to understand where people are coming from. So uh, no, I'm not tired. I, I think that uh, comments coming from consumers with regards to what it used to be like uh, many times motivate us uh, in terms of what is it that we could do better. OK. So you arrived at BA about three years ago. You've had a, a low-cost airline background. You were very successful first at Click Air and then Voiling. Um, did I say that right, Voiling? Uh, you did, but you did miss uh, my first employer. American Airlines? Correct. Okay. <laughs> so that, that, there was my, I started in a huge organization in, in Dallas, uh, in Fort Worth. Um, uh, it couldn't be more legacy than it was, but it was an incredible company to work for as my first job. And that's where I was indoctrinated into the airline industry. Um, I think the ability to, to start up an airline from scratch, yep. click air, was uh, an incredible experience. So were you able to bring some of this low-cost airline ethos when, when you came to BA? You know, I asked my boss uh, when, when he suggested that I, I should run BA, asking, you know, what would you like me to do? And, and he said, uh, be yourself and, and, and also make the numbers, uh, very important. Um, but I, I think that there was, he, what he was looking and what the organization was looking was for less a low-cost thinking. That's yep. not the point. The point is entrepreneurial thinking, action-oriented, numbers-driven, evidence-based, um, pragmatic, uh, people-oriented, listening, uh, empathic, etc. So I think it's much more about the attributes of how to run a modern business, which sometimes we translate into entrepreneurial uh, businesses or smaller businesses, but trying to bring that into BA, which is a challenge, a challenge. <laughs> but, but, it, but it's a great challenge and right. it's happening okay but at, at the end of the day if uh, EasyJet is charging 40 pounds to go to Rome you better be charging 40 pounds right you can't say we're gonna charge 50 but it's gonna be a slightly better experience so I, I would put it in another uh, yeah yes yes in a way the, the answer to your question is yes we, we have to remain competitive uh, in many respects so we cannot there are some people that say that they will pay a premium to pay to fly with BA that's something that when we're doing active revenue management pricing of our tickets we don't look at individual cases we look right. at demand and and how it's evolving and pricing etc um, but yes there is definitely a need if we want to be sustainably successful forever, uh, there are multiple equations that we need to get right. And I know this is really topical, but we live by this. Number one, we needed to reach uh, a certain degree of financial stability. BA was not a stable company. 
and was not after it privatized. And it took a really long time to get there. It was probably around four, five, six years ago when it began to achieve certain financial metrics which began to make it more resilient. If we were to go through a, a 07, 08 financial crisis type experiment today, sorry, uh, experience today, um, BA would be in a significantly much better place than what it was when it went through that. So number one was to achieve that, and a great deal of work went into that over a long period of time, probably the last 20 years. Once we achieved that and we proved to our shareholders and we gave money back to our shareholders, the next logical thing to do was to go and ask for money and get the money to invest in the passenger experience, which coincided with, with my arrival, and we began to uh, ask for the money, get the money, begin to spend the money. There's one third component, which is incredibly important in this whole equation. I guess, again, I don't want to sound too topical, but it's the complete truth, is our own team. So bringing all those three together, getting them to work right, is probably where we are at the moment. Okay. I did want to ask you uh, at least about one specific thing. Uh, you have been one of many airlines in Europe and the world to take away free food on short-haul flights. Other airlines seem to get away with it. Uh, people, perhaps some in the audience here, were very, very upset. Uh, did, did this reaction surprise you? It's, it's not rare in the industry. No, it didn't surprise me at all. Uh, if you have a perception that you're getting something for free, however bad quality or no choice it is, if you're taking that away, then there's a reaction. The point is, um, we went through a period of time during the emails and the complaints would be about the model. And after about six, seven months, the complaints were no longer about the model. We're about, I mean, row 27, and I didn't get the sandwich I wanted. And that lasted probably another six, seven, eight months before we got it right. We needed statistics. We needed to get the logistics right. Um, it's a topic I don't talk about it a great deal, but we made an assumption of the take-up of yeah. passengers on board. I think I told you that last time we spoke about, about it. And the actual take-up um, versus our assumptions was significantly higher, which created a logistics uh, um, a problem which took us a while. Um, M&S was very pleased, but it took us a while to, to, to actually sort out. Where we are today, uh, two years later, is at customer satisfaction levels, short-haul catering that are higher than what we had before we actually changed. So we've been equal just a couple of months ago, now we're slightly higher, and we have a platform that we can improve on significantly. So no, there are very, 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 very few seats left in Europe that provide you with something for free. I think that for us, um, changing to this model was a no-brainer. It was difficult at the beginning as a consequence of the change. We're very pleased of where we are, and we're going to continue fine-tuning. This is not a model that is just going to stay and be there. We want to develop and, and develop it even farther. Okay. I am going to dig deep on this because airline food is something that's interesting to me. Um, EasyJet's CEO has spoken about uh, using predictive analytics, and he has data scientists working on exactly how many foods of each type they need for each flight, depending on what time of the day it is and who's on board, uh, to reduce waste. Is that something that, that, that you do as well? Undoubtedly. So forecasting down is now taking place down to individual flight uh, number. And this is why it was particularly difficult for us in the first 12 months, in a way, because we didn't have one full cycle of, of flights. And we can make assumptions with regards to the second Geneva flight on Tuesdays. Uh, but it made a huge difference if it was a ski season or not, because uh, people got up from the resort very early in the day, and they wanted to eat something more on, on the airplane. Now we have that data, and what we are finding is that we are actually delivering a significantly much better fit of the actual demand with the product. I think this is an area of development for the whole industry, uh, to be quite honest. And here you're talking only about one particular model, which is the provision 
of buying and board food. Uh, if you look at the whole world and you look at long haul, that's not the model. The model is to actually uh, load up the airplane with lots of food. Yeah. And I think the industry will have to respond to that. Okay. I did want to ask you about the long haul um, advancements, especially in the, uh, the premium cabin. Uh, BA was the first airline globally to have this flatbed business class seat. Uh, it was very impressive in the 90s. It's still essentially the same seat. Uh, you've just introduced a new seat. Uh, first off, I want to know why it took so long. And second, feel free to brag about the seat. Um, I, uh, <laughs> okay. So w when I first arrived at BA, I probably asked a bunch of really um, immediate, uncomfortable questions. Um, and within the first few months, we managed to secure 400 million of investment, particularly for the premium cabins in long haul. And that's when we began to change the catering and the amenities, et cetera. Uh, but we also placed an order at that time for the seats. So a great deal of work had been done before. I wouldn't want to speculate why that order hadn't been placed before. What I can tell you is that BA is in a place today, as I said before, financially much better than what it was ever before. And that will guarantee us being around for a long time, another 100 years for sure, and also to continue investing on, on the customer product. So I, I can't really speculate why it wasn't in order before. We did it as quickly as we could. Uh, the seat itself, um, I, I think it's a, the final component that we had missing to be able to offer the best business class, the best club um, uh, product in this guy's period. And that is a combination of things. Uh, it's the seat itself, which you can look at the videos online, is the food uh, proposition, which we believe now is, we believe now customers are telling us, is the best uh, across the Atlantic, uh, is the amenities with the blankets, uh, uh, et cetera, the, the fastest Wi-Fi now going across the Atlantic, and what brings it all together are people. And our people are going through extra service training at the moment. They're getting individual devices. They're going through a complete transformation of their job. We believe we have an edge, and our people are, are that edge that will work with all that hard product investment, and that will bring that together into what I believe will be the best uh, club class. OK. Um, look, I understand that airline pricing is a function of supply and demand. You should charge whatever the market can bear. But I had a conversation just like this at the last gift forum with Joanna Garrity, who is the president of JetBlue Airways. She said it shouldn't cost $7,000 to fly from New York to London. Um, you know, why are these fares so high? And, and is there a fear that, that when JetBlue enters the market that, that the dynamics could change? Well, Joanna has the privilege of um, having a boss that worked for British Airways for many years. So uh, she can just uh, come out of her office, take a ride. Robin is right there. And I'm sure Robin can explain to her what, uh, what the British Airways pricing was that, at that time. Um, I, I agree with your first statement. Uh, airline pricing at the end is based on supply and demand and the ability to meet um, that product availability at the time that is required by the different types of travelers. Um, I think that beyond that, it's difficult to have an accurate conversation. You will find, at times, very, very, very cheap seats by some airlines. And a lot of consumers would say, how is it possible that an, an airline can offer a seat that is so cheap? And of course, there is the mechanics of revenue per flight rather than revenue per seat, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is, uh, this is not a science. I think is the underlying, uh, the underlying way of operating of most consumer businesses. Uh, there's a price which is set by market conditions, by competitors, by uh, supply, by demand. 
um, it's difficult to talk about if one particular ticket is very expensive or not. If you need to go to New York in the next two hours because there's an urgency, there's, there's probably, you won't be looking at price. You also need to make sure that, there's one aspect to, to ticketing and I, I probably um, was more conscious of this on my previous airline. If you repeatedly uh, create a sensation uh, a feeling that you're ripping people off. The moment that customers have an option uh, to travel in a similar experience, they'll go, they will leave. So you need to make sure that the overall proposition of what you have to offer, and sometimes at the ticket price with everything that comes with it, the relationship with the airline, the frequent flyer system, et cetera, uh, it has to be correct, otherwise you will lose customers. Okay. Um, I think I'm probably like contractually obligated to ask this question because you've probably been asked it every conference for the last couple of years. Uh, how is Brexit going to affect this airline? Brexit, what? what yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I really don't. Uh, you know, the airline industry uh, is characterized by um, having lots of people, and in my own organization, there, we, we have lots of people whose job in life is only to prepare for unexpected bad events. So from a mindset perspective, the airline is uh, the airline industry is a good industry to look at these sort of challenges. It may happen, it may not happen. If it happens, how do we prepare? How do we manage risks, et cetera, et cetera. So for us, uh, I don't want to trivialize Brexit in that perspective, but when you look at the last 100 years of British Airways, there's been wars, there's been viruses, there's been clouds, uh, ash clouds, et cetera. I think that we have prepared or continue preparing, and generally we have to read the news almost every day for a no-deal scenario, and we're confident that in a no-deal scenario we will be able to continue flying everywhere we fly today. Every market is not going to be a problem? We don't believe that there will be any problems. Okay. Uh, the theme of this conference, and I believe even, even this talk written on paper, is sort of uh, sustainability, right? Um, there's lots of things that we can talk about. Airlines have talking points on this, but at the end of the day, you're flying large airplanes that, that burn jet fuel. Um, is, is, is there anything that we can do to lessen the environmental impact of, of, of oh, there's flight? Oh, there's lots of things that we can do, and uh, the airline industry has articulated very well measurable and trackable commitments to work in that direction. Uh, this is a special week for me in, in this respect. Um, as part of our uh, anniversary, we're running uh, a number of initiatives, and one of them is the future fuels, uh, the fuels of the future. And we've been running uh, an exercise with a number of universities in the UK. There will be a, a judging panel. We're meeting tonight, and on Friday we'll have a meeting, and we'll go through, and we'll select uh, one of the projects, and we'll continue investing in the project to try to understand how fuels will evolve over the future and what is it that we as an industry can do. And we believe that BA has a role uh, on that. There is, uh, you could call it sarcastic, but absolutely real alignment uh, between the most core um, uh, objectives of sustainability within the airline industry, and it's always been there. Uh, and that is try to consume and use the least amount of fuel that right. you can when you're flying. What is really, really interesting, and I feel really passionate about this, is how the mindset of our teams are changing over time. When I came into BA, there was uh, a team of nine people in the fuel preservation department. And it's interesting how the presentations have been changing from uh, we have a new initiative that will save a million pounds to 
yeah, it may save some money, but that's not the point. The point is, is going to uh, not, do, by doing this, we're going to save so much CO2 uh, emissions. And I think that my, mindset is what really is driving change within the airline. The fact that it is no longer politically correct uh, to have non-reusable um, coffee mugs, the fact that there is a lot of internal pressure, pressure to address some of the easier items on, on plastics. The overall mindset of the company is changing. It's really exciting because it's coming from all over the place and we're, of course we're focusing it around a number of exercises. But yes, I think the airline industry can, should, and will do a, a great deal. We're part of it. Uh, both EasyJet and JetBlue talk about a, a future not that far away where uh, maybe flights under 350 miles, you could use electric aircraft. Is that something that you look at? I always have this story, which is, is fascinating. I had an engineer from Airbus about uh, 15 years ago explain to me on paper. I'm an engineer, so I could kind of take the technical explanation. How, and, 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 and this guy explained to me the science on why it was simply not possible to transmit data between an airplane um, operating at 100 kilometers, 1,000 kilometers per hour, and a satellite uh, in the skies faster than 9,600 baud. And, and uh, you know, I remember listening to this guy and being quite taken aback by saying, well, that's real, a real bummer. And today, we have hundreds of Netflix sessions concurrently, high definition, right. in a single airplane taking place. And by that, what I say, what, 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 to me, the lesson is, it's very difficult to envision how uh, electric energy, electric engines as conceived today will be able to power uh, an airplane that has two or 300 passengers. But we can't discard it because we are amazing. <laughs> the human race is amazing. We are ambitious in wanting to find uh, better ways to get there faster or slower, but uh, more sustainably. And uh, yes, I think that these experiments taking place in Norway at the moment will probably be earlier um, uh, versions of something that may develop over the future. I just don't know what it is, um, but I wouldn't rule it out. Okay. Um, changing subjects a little bit, um, I think as recently as last year, you were one of the last airline CEOs to, to take the A380 seriously. There was always a chance that BA might add more, and at that point, other airlines had said, forget about it. Uh, eventually, earlier this year, you said no, you went with the 777X. Um, what is it about the A380? I know you have many in your fleet, but, but why is this not a viable aircraft for the next 30 years? Uh, it's difficult for me to comment from an industry perspective. Yeah. I can give you some facts about BA. BA has 12. Uh, that order was placed a number of years ago. Those uh, 12 arrived, and they've been flying it. And they're great aircraft. Um, we like them. Uh, 12 is probably not the optimal number in terms of size, because you need to have uh, the inventory, the parts, the mechanics, the ratings, etc., to be able to operate them. But uh, it's a great aircraft. Now, we did come to... Um, a project to procure more wide-body aircraft, and for reasons that probably doesn't make sense for me to, to get into, we chose the 777X. Um, but overall, if you ask me about the 380 and the 380 experience within British Airways, it's, it's, it's been fantastic uh, for everything that it has to offer, the larger capacity, the noise imprint, uh, and, and um, uh, in contrast with some of the other aircraft. So it's been a very satisfying experience. We did have to make a commercial decision, and again, for many different reasons, we chose the 777X. Do you find that that aircraft, uh, customer satisfaction-wise, when you're doing the survey, do you get better marks for, for the A380? Normally, uh, there isn't, uh, over a long period of time, say a year, 
uh, you don't tend to see that. What happens is when a new aircraft comes in or a new uh, person comes into a particular aircraft and like the space or the like new features of the aircraft, you'll see a small spike in uh, customer satisfaction and the opposite also applies. So, but overall, the service that we have to provide, which is on the ground, in the air, cabin crew, the Wi-Fi, the seat, et cetera, um, it tends to normalize itself over a period of time. Okay. Uh, the A380, as I understand it, is a great aircraft for London because you're capacity controlled, and it's good for other big cities around the world. Um, you now in North America are flying to a lot of cities that even I uh, would never visit. So Charleston, South Carolina, Pittsburgh, Nashville, New Orleans. I mean, these are not cities that the big European airlines have historically flied into. Um, like what, what do you see in these types of markets? There are others that really want to go there. I, tell I, you, I, I promise. Okay. okay. I, I promise. When I joined American Airlines, my I walked into my boss's uh, office, and uh, his first question on August thirteenth, nineteen ninety, he said, "Did you unpack?" And I said, "No." He said, "Okay, you're going to Nashville." And I was in Nashville for a month, going through some uh, uh, issues at, at what at that time was the hub of American Airlines. All the cities that we're flying into um, do not have European connectivity. And for us to be able to come into New Orleans, uh, uh, Charleston, et cetera, uh, um, and uh, cities that have not had a direct flight anywhere into Europe, it's a big deal. And the cities and the business communities uh, um, in, in those cities uh, tend to be extremely supportive in creating an environment where um, there's more business that takes place. It's amazing the amount of business delegations that we have had here in London, meeting with the mayor, with many other uh, parties uh, from Louisiana or uh, uh, from Tennessee and uh, even from California, Southern California, etc. So it's, uh, we, we, we think that there is a market to continue doing that. Of course, a percentage of those passengers connect on to Europe. So we're just the window onto the, the, the rest of Europe. I think this is a, a great opportunity, and uh, you, you shouldn't be surprised if we continue looking at where else uh, could we fly. If you look at all the cities and you say any city above 500,000 um, uh, or a million or something like that, there's a lot of cities in the US that don't have uh, European connectivity. You know, there's that old joke that network planners are actually just throwing darts at, at the map in their office. <laughs> But you're saying that's not true? No, that, that, that's, that's definitely not true. Uh, although it could be fun, actually, um, as, as, as a brainstorming exercise before the next session. No, there isn't. The amount of analysis that goes into each route, it's truly amazing. Uh, the amount of um, historical data processing, data analytics that goes on, uh, relationship building. Because you know, ultimately, you look at the face of those people in Louisiana and uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, and, and you try to get a feeling for really, is there going to be business here or not? And by the way, if it doesn't work, ultimately airlines do move out and go somewhere else. But the US has been great, and uh, we have a long history to traveling to the US, and we'll probably continue opening up new markets. So uh, a long haul route like that, how long do you give it before you know if it's a winner or a loser? Um, it's a good question. I think it, it, it varies, and I guess I can tell you some facts. Um, when I arrived, we had been flying to Chengdu for three years. And it was an extremely, extremely painful decision. But it was a fairly straightforward decision. And I went to Tehran to start service to Iran uh, two and a half years ago. And we had to pull out uh, uh, last year as a consequence of really, really weak demand uh, developing. 
So I think that what we try to be is, um, well, we, we, we try to work on the profitability of the routes as much as possible. Yeah. There's a sense of bet. I mean, you know, how could you not bet on the Chinese market? That's why it was a really difficult decision to come out of Chengdu, but at the same time, it does have to make some right. financial sense. Should we take some audience questions? Great. Okay. Um, so I see this first one here, your take on acquisitions. Uh, it's my understanding that, that your parent company, IAG, would probably make the acquisitions. Is, is that right? Or is that okay, something you, that you... You blew the answer because you know, okay. the answer is so easy. Um, uh, we have no acquisitions because okay. that's British Airways. Right. <laughs> so IAG, I, I have no idea. IAG is called International Airlines Group. Uh, so surely they will be looking at things, but I don't know. All right. We'll ask Willie Walsh. Yeah, please. Great. Um, so I'm going to take this third question here um, because I didn't get to it, even though I had it here. Um, in your opinion, can low-cost, long-haul airlines ever make money? I think that's a great question. Um, as you know, we owned uh, a stake for a period of time. IG owned yep. a stake uh, in Norwegian, and earlier in the year, um, we decided to sell it. Uh, IG decided to sell it. And uh, I think that the point here is, if you look at the passengers flying between London and New York pre-arrival of long-haul low-cost carriers in Gatwick and post, you'll see that the number of passengers increased. So there was an extra demand that was, that was not serviced, uh, apparently. It was a very price-sensitive demand, without a doubt. I think the question that remains to be proven is if you can make money at servicing that demand. And it appears, it appears, uh, if you look at some of these models around the world, it appears that that hasn't been proven just yet. Okay. So one of the interesting things that you did after Norwegian entered the Gatwick market is they were flying to Oakland. Mm. They were flying to Fort Lauderdale. You launched both flights. Mm. Uh, Oakland, I think, is gone, right? Fort Lauderdale mm. is ending. Mm. Uh, what made you decide you didn't need to be on those routes anymore? I think, uh, once again, the, the uh, backbone reason to start a new route or to retreat away from a route is trying to look for a financial contribution. So ultimately, I think that um, uh, the routes didn't make sense themselves. Interestingly enough, also the other carrier we're competing with exited uh, those destinations as well. Uh, for us, the most important thing when we look at uh, long haul, particularly on the leisure side, uh, where we may have access to some of the cost-conscious um, uh, passengers to make sure that we have the right price points. And the 777s in Gatwick are incredible. They have uh, the lowest operating cost in Gatwick whilst providing a fantastic club service, premium economy service, and they've all been, there's two left to be refurbished, but the ones that have been refurbished already are driving MPS through the roof, which is great. It's incredibly encouraging. So great MPS, great product, great 777, and the ability for us to price very flexibly. Okay. Um, let's go for that uh, second question here as our, as our last one, because this has been in the news also. Uh, what have you fundamentally changed to ensure our data is as safe as it can be? Brands seem to communicate on this only when there's a crisis. I think that one of the advantages that we have in the airline industry is that we have a structure and a platform to manage safety and security. Uh, there are post holders, there are audits, there are teams, there are rules, um, there are regulators, etc. And to, to give you the shortest of answers, what we have done is incorporated cybersecurity into that platform. So all, all of a sudden, we have responsible and accountable managers, 
we have um, a completely different view in terms of how to treat investment uh, just to make sure that we are as safe as we can on the ground and in the air. So there's a change of mindset. And it's very difficult to talk about this without asking everyone to make sure you change your password uh, often and make sure that it doesn't look at all like your last password and then make sure that everyone around you has changed their password because this is, uh, as uh, trivial as it sounds, yeah. an incredible measure that, that helps a tremendous amount. So we had invested a tremendous amount. We've absolutely uh, have bumped up the investment. But I think what will make a difference is to begin to treat cybersecurity in a way that is really familiar to us in the airline industry from a safety perspective. Great. Well, thank you. We are out of time. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks.